Hi everyone and welcome to the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. Today we're at the Bridging the Divide Conference and this is Joe Huggins filling in for Adam Hofberg. Today's a special day. We're introducing our new theme music, which is written and performed by Luke Halpin with the help of Steve Seeley and produced by Denver Film and Digital. Also today, we're at the Bridging the Divide conference where I've had a chance to talk with Sally Spencer Thomas and hear about the work that she's doing. So welcome, Sally. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're up to? Thanks, Joe. Thanks for interviewing me for the podcast here. It's very exciting to be a part of this. So I'm a psychologist by training, and I had been in the field of mental health for about 16 years when I lost my younger brother to suicide in 2004, and that got me laser-focused on being a, becoming a suicide prevention expert. From the beginning, the focus was really around figuring out bold gap-filling things that would prevent what happened to my brother uh, from happening to other people. And so that led me into this journey to try to figure out how best to reach working-age men. And if we're reaching kids in high schools, we're going to reach working-age men in workplaces because either they're working or they were just working or someone in their family's working. Um, so most of them are somehow connected to a workplace. Um, and so that's been, that's been quite a journey. And I've also been informed by how my workplace responded to my own grief and loss around suicide, how my work journey also led me into a major depression. So all of these points of of knowledge gaining kind of got me to where I am today. Thank you for sharing that. I know that so often it is our lived experience that brings us to where we are today. Well, I suppose it always will bring us to where we are today, won't it? One of the things that I know you're very interested in, and you touched on it with you know the work environment, but you've been doing some really interesting work with construction and the, the construction work area. Tell us about that, because for me, it's not the first place that I think about when I think about suicide in the workplace. Yeah, it's very curious to me. So about 60% of my time now is spent in construction industry work. So I I get off a plane, go into this venue. I'm standing in front of 250 middle-aged white guys with substance abuse issues often. You know, they're my audience. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, how did I get here? And it's exactly the place I needed to be. So for the better part of a decade, you know, we felt like, oh, my gosh, we really have some answers here to share with workplaces. They're going to be so excited to learn about these life-saving strategies, and nobody wanted to talk to us. You know, most workplaces were like, yeah, no, that's a personal issue. People need to take care of that stuff at home, not our business, not our problem. We haven't had a suicide at our work site ever, um, and we just couldn't make any inroad. When we shifted about, you know, 2012 to focus on industry-specific suicide prevention in what we call high-risk industries, game-changer. Um, and we first worked in uh, with law enforcement and fire service because at their top levels internationally, they had been collecting data that they couldn't deny that suicide was a problem. And so we've, we've done some things in that space, but very quickly behind it came construction, and it's actually quite a lovely story. I was part of Leadership Denver, and as most of these leadership networking groups go, you go out and have coffee or breakfast with your fellow classmates. And so I was out to breakfast with a contractor here in Denver, the COO of RK. He said, Sally, you know, when you talk about who's at risk for suicide, you're talking about my guys. And I said, I know. And he said, well, I don't want to wait, you know, for someone to die to teach me. Let's do something at my company. 
And so I always credit um, John Kenning for being such an early adopter. Nobody else was touching this in construction, and he boldly moved forward and said, let me be the first. And within just a couple of months of doing some little bit of training, a little bit of communication stuff, we did a needs assessment so we could reflect back the things that we were learning. He said, Sally, no, this is too important for just my company to benefit from. And so their foundation underwrote the development of a construction industry blueprint for suicide prevention. Same thing, we had these roundtables of local experts and everybody was leaning in and put this piece together of upstream, midstream, and downstream um, with specific focus on the particular risk factors within construction. And we launched that on World Suicide Prevention Day in 2015. And one of my dear colleagues, Cal Byer, was part of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention And he said, how can I help? Now, he'd been a professional in risk management for construction for a number of decades, and he knew everybody. So I said, if you can... you know, fan the flames on this document and get us some coverage and some, you know, you know, exposure, that's stuff I can't do. And so he went to town and he had major publications fighting over who could do it bigger, bigger, faster, and so forth. And so out it went and it became on the horizon of a lot of um, construction professional associations in particular. One in particular was the Construction Financial Management Association, which is the CFOs, the financial officers of the construction industry. And again, like curious how we ended up here. Like really the accountants are going to be the champions for suicide prevention? You bet. They are absolutely the perfect champions for suicide prevention. They're very high up in the food chain. Everybody pays attention to what the CFO has to say. They make things happen really quickly. So they started doing suicide prevention summits around the country. And then last July, the CDC came out with a report identifying industries at highest risk for suicide. And while farming, fishing, and forestry was the top industry, construction and extraction was number two for highest rates and number one for highest numbers. And that was the game changer. So that's why 60% of my time now is in construction because now it's we've got data to back it up. We've got strategy. We've got leadership. And um, I just kind of help them with stra- you know figuring out where to, where to turn. One of the things you said, right, in the beginning of that was, these are my guys. Who are these guys that make them high risk? Well, we had known, generally speaking, that there was a you know a perfect storm of, of, of risk factors that would enter a certain kind of workplace. And number one is any kind of male-dominated workplace. So that's, again, why fi- fire service and law enforcement became um, easily identifiable in industries and professions. Similarly, you know, 90% or plus of the construction industry is male. So that's that's one piece. But they also have a lot of other components to the work. So they're they're stoic and they're brave. They do these daunting things that most of us wouldn't dare to do, like climb up on top of high structures and heavy machinery and so forth. And while, thank goodness, we have people in our community that are willing to do this or we wouldn't have any buildings and bridges, it does like make them less afraid of life and death situations. So as Thomas Joyner would say, you know, they have the acquired capacity to face death in the face and not be afraid. Um, they also have work that's very unstable. So it's seasonal. It's very, it flexes with the economy. And so very often people are laid off or furloughed or downsized or whatever. But when they're working, they can make a decent wage. So they tend to build up a lifestyle, build up expectations when they're employed, and when they're not, the expectations are crushed. And so the whole, the whole theory around these deaths of despair that we're seeing really fit with this culture um, because they can see 
I can actually att- attain something. And then when they don't, um, that the disappointment is um, too much to bear and the sense of failure and that they're not being a provider. Um, the inconsistent work also adds to the fact that they don't have consistent insurance and access to different forms of health care. And so that's another barrier for them to stay well. One of the things that I'm learning is a huge contributor is the fact that this, this kind of work is incredibly straining on the muscular skeletal being. And so there's often injuries or strain from overwork um, that leads them to get a prescription that's a narcotic. And so it, it is the industry that has the largest numbers of and rates of narcotic addiction um, that started with a very legitimate prescription for pain management, but there weren't any other components or a good plan on how to get the person off, and so it escalates into an addiction. Um, and we know that opiate addiction and suicide are intimately intertwined because that's an incredibly difficult addiction. Like, there's no easy addiction, but that one it has a very short um, ramp up to it. Um, and so it, and it often leads to all kinds of other problems because opiates take out the part of the brain that says, I care. And that's why it's effective. You still feel the pain. You just don't care about it anymore. So you stop caring about your family and caring about all these other things. And then the last thing that I'll mention, there's actually a whole long list of them, but the last thing that I'll mention that um, I think is a really important one to note is that people who work in construction often have very disrupted sleep schedules. So they often start work in the very, very early hours. A lot of times there's long-distance travel to get to the work site, and they will do what needs to be done to get jobs Done. So very often they're sacrificing sleep. Um, one story that was just told to me was um, about the fact that you know they'll often travel days to get to a work site, and they'll be given a per diem to pay for a hotel and food and so forth. And instead of spending that on a hotel and real food, they'll pocket it and they'll create these camps that are pretty primitive and not very comfortable, and they'll eat pretty poorly. And so again, sacrificing their help to bring some more money home um, to help provide for their families. So. All of these things together um, kind of lead us to that, that deaths of despair moment where the, the pain and the, the sense of being a burden is, becomes overwhelming. Very interesting. I mean, you paint this very concise picture of this population. Tell us about some of the things that are going on in this community. I was really surprised to see the speed of adoption for these ideas and so forth. And I'm like, what is going on? How come, how come this industry is getting this so quickly and like pushing things forward so quickly? And, and there's a bunch of things that I see happening. One is by the, while they're high risk, there's also a high readiness. So within any kind of workplace culture where there's a strong value of safety, there is often a value of not on my watch. No incidents, no accidents, nobody gets harmed on my watch. So our message in the suicide prevention field of zero suicides, that's what we're aspiring to, they got it. Like, like totally fits into that value, that culture of aspiring to nobody gets hurt. Um, and so they've been able to adopt the kind of continuous quality improvement piece and having a strategy and we're all in. And so that's been really refreshing. The other piece that's really working is in a lot of companies, there is a sense of brotherhood, uh, whether that's union-based or it's because it's a family company, there is the sense that we are a family. And again, similarly to the first responders, that's where we start. So I, I took a lot of lessons learned from there and I'm applying them here is that literally these mostly men depend on each other's lives and safety for everybody to be sound and everybody to be paying attention. So there is this really deep bond, like I depend on you and I need you to be there for me um, like a brother. 
And so this, the peer support piece and the, I got my brother's back piece, again, not a huge ramp to get that to be a thing that they're like, hell yeah, of course, why wouldn't I? And again, from coming from the, the men's help seeking and help giving literature piece, the idea of reciprocity is easy then. Like, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll reach out to get peer support and tell you that I'm having, but you're going to get my back later on. And that going back and forth piece um, seems to work really well. It's so fascinating to take the pieces that are already there and build on them and incorporate them into this whole program. It's just, that is so cool. The overall lessons learned across the board that I think suicide prevention in general needs to do a better job in. It's always the tension between developing a best practice that has tons of evidence behind it and it has a very strict um, integrity model to it and saying, and it needs to be culturally responsive and culturally relevant. And I believe there's room in the middle where both those things can happen, but there has to be some flexibility. You cannot just take an off-the-shelf whatever, campaign, training, program, and dump it into a very highly different culture and expect it to work. Like, I have no credibility in construction, but I can listen and I can tie things together so it feels like it's by them, about them, and for them. And, I, and then we just need to get out of our own way. Like, we can guide them in the path, but it has to feel like it's owned by whatever system we're in. And I think too often we're like, well, you, you have one way to do it because that's the one way that has all the evidence behind it. And we'll do a training and then, you know, months later it's just forgotten because it didn't have the stickiness. As David Covington would say, it wasn't baked in. It was just thrown in so someone could check a box off, we did it. All good intentions all around. Mm -hmm. But if we're really going to create cultural change, we have to spend the time to figure out where those strengths are so a company can feel really good about doing this work and build on the things that are working to be protective factors, but also to address the risks in a way that people feel hope that if we deal with them, they're going to get fixed. And those will vary from place to place, system to system, industry to industry. So we just be, and when you spend the time listening, building relationships, finding those internal champions, gathering that culturally relevant data, now I have credibility. And now I also have benchmarks, like here's where we started and here's where we are now. I have storytellers. I have relationships with leadership that I wouldn't have had if I just said, here's the training, plop it in and run. You know, It's a very different kind of process. Um, I want to give another shout-out to another early adopting group, and that's the Smart Union, uh, Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation. They uh, are developing a peer support program, again, very similar to what I've seen in first responder communities, where it's mostly, uh, mostly men with lived experience, most of them in recovery from some kind of addiction, uh, some of them suicide attempt survivors who um, are highly trained in how to be good listeners um, and engage with their brothers um, and be the, that support liaison um, into treatment recovery centers or in conversations around suicide. And uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly impressed and inspired every time I go out to train these guys because they're so hungry. No one's ever talked to them about this stuff before, and yet they've all lived through it, you know, and no one has ever acknowledged their collective grief because many of them have lost several coworkers to suicide, how fast the movement happens from just my opening the door and saying, you know, step in because we, we can talk about this and we can process this grief and we can save lives. Well, well that's so very exciting. We're at the Bridging the Divide conference, and I know you've got 
You've been running around doing a lot of things to, in support of this great conference, and I do want to say 2017 has been a great year for Bridging the Divide, and so I think we're all looking forward to 2018. But I know you have to get going. Any last thing you'd like to say before you run away? I would say to any workplace leaders, um, don't wait till a suicide has devastated your workforce and it will devastate your workforce on multiple levels even if you try to sweep it under the carpet be proactive like john kinning chris carlo um stuart binstock all these incredible leaders who said you know not on my watch teach me everything i can do in my power to prevent this from happening here um i think there's fear like oh we don't want to be the first you know whatever company or agency to be identified as having a suicide prevention problem and i get that but actually, the opposite happens. The opposite happens. People lean in and they say, oh, what are they doing over there? Suicide prevention. Oh, that's interesting. And, and it's working. And, and then all of a sudden, we've got a domino effect because other peers will look in to see what kind of leader would be so bold to do that. Well, thank you very much, Sally. And that's it today for the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention our production from the Bridging the Divide conference here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I should give a shout out that Sally will be starting her own podcast. So be on the lookout for that. And we'll certainly add that link to this podcast page when it becomes available. There'll also be links to the other work that Sally has been doing and is currently doing. As always... Subscribe to us, tell a friend, give us a rating. It helps other people find us. And until next time, this is the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. See you later. Mm-hmm.